Hello, I'm Grayson Brulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. Before this episode begins, please kindly take a moment to follow and be notified when a new episode is released. Imagine walking onto a used car lot and not being able to find any history about the health of the vehicle. Today, the used electric vehicle market is a black box, but Recurrent is here to make the process easier and more transparent. On this episode, I sat down with Scott Case, co-founder and CEO of Recurrent, to discuss their tools for buying, maintaining, and selling used electric vehicles. Enjoy this episode. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for getting a friend on the wait, off the wait list because you got me a bottle of wine. So I'm really looking forward to this. I still can't believe that you got that wine and I did not get that wine. I, <laughs> it's not fair. Life is not fair. Well, we'll, we'll, ha- right we'll host now. you in Florida one day and we'll, we'll have a bottle of wine together because Recurrent is an awesome company. It's a young company that's kicking some serious butt. You founded Recurrent in September 2020 during the middle of COVID. And when you were asked why you decide to launch the company then, you said, because I love negotiating on cars. That's awesome. Talk about it, please. I have to say, like, I've been in clean tech for 10 years, but I had not worked in the auto industry before before now. And um, however, I did, you know, have a in business school, I took a negotiation class that was just like, I love that class. It was the like the highlight of business school for me. And, you know, for that class, they want you to go and, and like practice negotiating and like what better opportunity to practice negotiating than buying and selling cars. And so I've always just had a I had a delightful time doing that. So that was like my first entry into the auto industry. What I think is interesting, though, about this business and founding it during COVID is EVs obviously are going up into the right in terms of adoption. Like I I think everybody listening to that, um, to this podcast knows that. But the impact of COVID on and and the economic recession as a result has been really like kind of interesting. There's sort of three big reasons why I think what we're doing fits into um like kind of the post the during COVID and post COVID world. Um, one is like, you know, you see this time and again, that used cars do better than new cars in recessions. Um, that happens again and again and again for pretty obvious reasons. Two is, is this particular, um, recession caused by a public health crisis, you know, accelerated used car buying at the expense of rideshare and transit. You know, I think jury's out on whether that sticks around or not as a lasting impact, but that definitely sort of caused uh, the used car industry to, to really take off this year. And then three is like, you know, COVID accelerated what was already a, a trend that was happening already around um, a trend towards online research and direct e-commerce style purchasing of uh, automobiles and fewer sort of in-person dealership visits. And so I think we fit right into all three of those trends, which I think is like timing is kind of everything when you're starting a company. It was the perfect storm. You had all the three ingredients that you needed to have a completely successful market. So no more are you the guy going into every lot and trying to negotiate a deal. You're, you're, you're negotiating them online. So how, before all this, how would dealers and consumers price electric vehicles? Was there any transparency? Because now you can get from your recurrent, you get all the data on the vehicle, the battery life. Before, was it the, here, Scott walks in the lot, so let me see. Well, this has got a ding here. Well, minus that on the battery, and you kind of did your negotiating skills, and you got a good deal? Well, I, I think before we came along, like, used EVs were priced no different from used combustion engine cars. You know, what's the what's the odometer number? You know, what's it smell like inside? Is that, you know, were there rats living under the hood, chewing wires, whatever, you know, that those kinds of factors. Um, 
you know, I actually, to be frank, I, you know, we're still pretty new in the industry. So I don't think that they that that we have yet moved the industry to where it's going to go. But it's really clear where it is going to go. Um, and that's where I think the odometer doesn't really make a difference anymore, anywhere near as what it did. The battery health, as you pointed out, is basically the whole ball game. That's the new odometer right there. Is the battery how primarily how used electric vehicles are calculated based on how much density is left or what range? Or are there other elements as, hey, was there somebody living in the car? Does it smell? Were you a smoker? All these things that go into a used car purchase? Yeah, there there, there are a ton of factors. I mean, in the end, like a, a used electric car is still a used car. And so there are, you know, what color is it? Do you like that? You know, is there has it been an accident? There's all kinds of factors that are shared. But the biggest, you know, cost factor in terms of, of you know, of, of what's going on with a used electric car is, is the battery health. And the impact of the battery health is uh, that the consumers care about kind of two things. One is what's the range on the car compared to the, what it was when it was uh, new, you know, kind of the EPA rating. Uh, and two is how much longer is it going to be until you need to do a battery replacement? Uh, because when you do, it's a huge cost. I mean, you could buy a $10,000 used Nissan Leaf and to, the cost to replace the battery is $10,000. So you basically just bought a brick at that point. I'm not picking on Nissan Leaf. And that I mean, that's the case with any of these cars. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, you really want to know about it. How can a consumer know the battery health of a used EV before they wire the money or old school write the check? Uh, well, I mean, that's what we're here to try and do. So, um, so our main product is is a essentially a vehicle condition report. Um, some folks have called it like the Carfax for EVs, uh, and it's meant for shoppers who are thinking about buying a, a used EV and want to understand what the battery and range is like uh, for that car versus like what it was when it was when it was new, and be able to comparison shop between two. It's for dealers also who don't know that either, frankly. <laughs> uh, and it's for also for owners who are trying to understand, like your friend with the, you know, the giver of the bottle of wine who wants to under to the, and they want to understand how their battery is aging so they can, you know, take care of it better. And so they can kind of know when is the right time to sell, you know, and, and kind of like get and get the optimal price for it. How can a consumer, they're on a virtual lot or they're, they're looking on a, on a used car site, how can they find a report say, okay, I'm interested in this used EV. Wait a second. Recurrent can tell me what the battery life is. is. How do they get it? They go to the, they say, hey, Mr. Dealer. Hey, Mrs. Dealer. I need a recurrent report because this is the future. Our business model, we are working primarily with uh, with car dealers. Um, so we have a couple of dozen at this point um, who, and it's it runs the gamut from EV specialist dealers to, you know, franchise dealers that are in, I would say, like leading markets for EV adoption. And so they, they're just providing you, you know, if you go to one of our dealers, you you go to their website and you're looking at the vehicle details page and you see you see a Carfax report for every car. You see a recurrent report for uh, for used EVs. Now we are we're not in every we're not in every store near you yet. And so um, one of the things we're really excited about this month in July is launching a shopper uh, scoring tool. Uh, so what as a shopper, you can walk into uh, into or onto any dealership lot or, you know, to some extent, if you have the right access, do it remotely and get a, a battery score uh, and on each on, on a car that you're looking for. Um, and it requires like, 
You'll like go up to the car, take a couple of pictures of the dashboard, enter a few pieces of data, and then we're able to use that information compared against thousands of cars that we have in our fleet, like, you know, like your friend's car who are, who are getting monthly reports from us in exchange for sharing their data. And then, and, and we essentially use that information to produce, uh, a, essentially a battery health estimate, uh, for that car. So used car dealers get a bad rap. You got the oh the overweight gentleman with the giant cigar. Ah, you're just gonna buy this car. And it's gonna be good for you. And then your consumers go in there with the shopper scoring, put the piece of data, and say, "Wait a second, no, 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 no. My data says this, and the car's actually six thousand dollars less than what you're trying to sell it for me." How does that go over on the used cars? Is the rah 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 guy say, "No, no, no, you gotta leave. You gotta leave." <laughs> you know, I haven't interacted with a lot of rah rah rah. <laughs> You, you should probably do that noise. I don't think I can do it, but I haven't interacted with a lot of uh, folks like that in the industry. Uh, I mean, I think that there is a stereotype of that, you know, of that gentleman with the cigar. Um, but uh, but the, the the car dealers that we're working with who are, you know, really leading adopters on yeah, on EV sales, you know, they're they're really sort of looking forward to this is how the industry is going to be and uh, and not sort of burying their head in the sand around like, oh, I, I'm just going to try and I, I was doing the voice a little bit there. I'm just going to try and you, you know, like, do it. Yeah, I'm just going to try and like pull one over on these on these on these people. I, I think that the 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 biggest point for a dealer and for a shopper is like most of the time uh, batteries in UZVs are holding up better than consumers expectations are. Right. It's like the reality is better in most cases than um, than uh, perception, I guess, I guess I'll say it that way, but there is a big variance. And so you can have situations where you have, you know, really low mileage cars that actually have batteries that are cooked and, uh, pretty hard. And, you know, and it doesn't mean they're unusable. It just means they'll get a lot less range than, uh, than they would at new. And you can also have situations where there's really high mileage cars that, um, that the battery is in great shape and it'll keep on going and going. Um, and I, I think generally speaking, there's probably the low mileage EV, low mileage, but pretty old EV is generally overvalued by the industry. Whereas the high mileage, younger one, less calendar age. And you might see that with, uh, fleet vehicles that are being retired and sold into the, into the, into the secondary market. Uh, those are generally probably undervalued, um, compared to what they should be. What role does climate if you're living in a cold weather super hot weather you're living in a, an environment on the ocean for salt what role does the climate play in the variance of, of of the battery health the big factors i mean i'll i'll answer this broadly the big factors of like the main causes of ev battery degradation are like you know one is is temperature uh over time extreme temperature over time and i'll say specifically extreme high temperatures over time will cause uh um will tend to cause battery degradation uh, faster than than moderate temperatures or even cold temperatures. Uh, cold temperatures, on the other hand, will uh, will reduce the range that you can get in any one trip, but it's a temporary variance. Uh, hot temperatures over time will cause the, the battery to age faster. But that's only one factor. The other ones, you know, the other big ones are the um, pattern of your depth of discharge. So if you're always running the car from 100% down to 0%, um, that will be more um, cause more strain on the battery than if you're always, than if you're generally keeping within the 30 to 70, you know, range, um, the calendar age of the battery actually is a, is a, is a big deal, probably bigger than the, the amount of odometer usage, uh, use of, uh, uh, DC fast charging a lot. You know, if you're, if you're just feeding your car a steady diet of DC fast charging, 
um, that's going to be um, that's going to be a, a also high impact. Um, and, you know, <laughs> odometer is there as a proxy for like a lot of these other factors, but it's a, not a particularly good proxy uh, I mean, to give you one example. I mean, we saw a 2003 uh, Nissan Leaf. So um, I'm sorry, 2013 is what I should what I meant to say. It wasn't out in 2003, 2000, 2013 Nissan Leaf one from one of our dealers with uh, 19,000 miles. So like an yeah, eight-year-old car with 19,000 miles. If you saw that car as a combustion engine vehicle, you'd be like, that's a sweet deal, you know? But the battery on the on that car turned out to be cooked. It was barely getting 35 miles of range on an EPA of 75, right? And it was, that car had sat essentially unused in Southern California for most of its life. And it was, it, it, it was, it was, the, that battery was highly degraded, you know, it was still running and it was actually fine as a city car. Uh, it's a great car for your, you know, for your teenager who just got the, got their license. You don't want them to be able to get very far. Um, so it was worth something to someone, but, uh, but it wasn't worth the same amount as like, you know, a comparable, you could easily have a 2012, 2013 Nissan Leaf that has, you know, close to the original EPA mileage if it was cared for in a different way and maybe grew up in a different climate. So yeah, od odometer is not a great proxy for this. Similar cars to the Nissan Leaf, other manufacturers, if somebody just takes it and says, well, I'm only going to, um, uh, they live part part the year, say in Florida, and then part of the year up north and they leave the vehicle down here, it just sits all year. Does that vehicle battery die faster since six months of the year is just sitting in a garage doing nothing? Uh, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> It's not good. Uh, however, sitting in a garage, um, if it's climate controlled and it's sort of like it's it's um, plugged in with different you, different manufacturers have different better battery management systems that can kind of like uh, keep it sort of climb, keep the battery under really good uh, temperatures. So I would say like you want it plugged in, but you don't want it sort of plugged in, sort of sustained at high uh, level of charge the entire time while you're away. Um, so there's, there's ways of caring for it. And that's frankly what we're trying to do with that, um, with our, um, with our driver reports. So like, so that the other kind of like product that we have is for current EV drivers who want to understand how their battery is aging and how to, and, uh, and, and, um, how it compares to other, you know, uh, other cars. Like, you know, we have at this point almost 1500, uh, Tesla model threes in our data fleet, all contributing data to, to, to help us score. Uh, Model 3s that we see uh, for sale on the used lots. Um, but what we're doing for all those folks, they get monthly reports and they get sort of personalized tips and, and recommendations for how they can keep their battery in really good shape. Um, so that that's that's the kind of observation that we we might make for, for an individual car. You mentioned the Model 3, an extremely popular car. A lot of those are going to start coming off a lease and individuals are going to start trading up to maybe a Model Y or the new Plaid edition, if they're really balling, what's how's the market going to react when also when all these used Model Threes become available? What well, that is the big story in the EV market for this year is so it's the three year three year anniversary of the of the release of the Model Three, um, and the numbers that were delivered, you know, quarter over quarter three years ago were just like there was a huge jump in particular going into Q3 of 2018. So here we are three years later. Now, not a lot of those cars were released at the beginning, but you still have a pretty common refresh cycle around three to four years. So uh, that's going to be a, a, a big change uh, to give you some sense of the idea. Like right now, about 6%, 6 to 7% of the um, used 
EVs for sale on the market are Model 3s in the US. That number could be as high a year from now, that number could be as high as 40% of, of the used EVs because that was the share that, that, uh, that they were of the new market in 2018, 2019 just that one model. So that is the big story. If you're a, 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 a driver, if you're a, you know, who has one of these, if you're a shopper who's looking at one of them, and if you're a dealer in particular, who's thinking about like, I'm going to build a business off of, or I'm going to really grow my business off of buying and selling used model threes, like big opportunity there. Um, however, I will say that, uh, I, my observations is like most dealers are not ready for that surge. Um, and it's not so much, you know, these are three-year-old cars. It's not so much, uh, you know, battery wear and tear. I mean, you can get an occasional one that's sort of like better or worse, but, but a three-year-old, uh, EV is not going to have much in the way of a battery or range degradation where I think the really interesting, um, story there is, is understanding uh, as a buyer or as a dealer, what software features are enabled in particularly full self-driving? Like is, does it have full self-driving does full self-driving transfer, uh, you know, to a new owner and how does it, where does it, and where does it not? Um, cause that's a $10,000 value swing and it's not something that you can pull off of the VIN, like a Vindy code, like dealers are doing, uh, you know, for every other, mo every other car. So really interesting challenges that are in front of the industry, I think, uh, for the used model three in particular. It's a really interesting point that you bring up about FSD. You're right. Is it transferable or not? We don't know. I have a better sense of that I, after looking into it a lot, but who knows that could change literally tomorrow. <laughs> it takes one tweet. Next thing you know, if you transfer it, you get Dogecoin. I mean, we really don't, <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. If you have this massive flood on the market, it's going to lower the prices which raises the question because demand for used cars are up 58% from last year and you've got Model 3s flooding the market. Does the used EV market now with this flood of new Model 3s, does it all suddenly get a lot l lower? This one is, is such an interesting, the supply and demand dynamics of the used EV market is, are so interesting. So, I mean, one thing, it, you know, that I think is on the demand side, like there is ever increasing demand for used EVs. So that that's sort of like, tends to push prices up. You're right, as new supply comes into the market, especially as like there there really is, I think this year, a, a step function of, of new supply available because of the, the, the increase in delivery of new EVs three years ago. Um, but you also have uh, two other factors, or at least two other factors that are different from um, what you see in the combustion use uh, combustion engine vehicle market. Uh, one is just like the impact of state and federal tax policies. And um, so like, you you know, and that could be that can cause like, obviously, like if a manufacturer runs out of its um, like Tesla has runs out of its federal tax credit on new prices that actually impacts the used market as well. Uh, so you can kind of have those things, but you also have state policies. Like I live in Washington state where for a used EV under uh, actually, I know for new cars, uh, new EVs under 45,000, there's no sales tax on the first 25,000, but like, and that's a policy that our neighboring states don't have. And so you can have these just really interesting um, state to state variations. But the last thing, which I think is a little bit of, a, of, a, of an under told story right now is uh, the way that, so Tesla.com is a big player in the used, in the, in sales of their own used uh, Teslas. And uh, one thing that they are doing right now is every used Model 3 uh, has a, has full self-driving bundled onto it 
as a software feature. You know, and that cannot be unbundled as a buyer. So if you buy from a Model 3, a used Model 3 from Tesla, you get it with full self-drive on it. Now, uh, that means that like they're charging extra for that software feature, right? Um, and so that I think does tend to, um, because that like if you buy it after market, like it's $10,000, like if you buy it, I'll, I'll buy it on a new one. So I think that that is maybe causing the residual values uh, to for Tesla's to appear maybe higher than they would ordinarily be. Cause you have a car that comes in, didn't have full self-drive, goes back to Tesla uh, uh, off of lease. And then it comes out of Tesla with full self-drive bundled on in a higher price point. Yeah. So weird, weird things going on right now in that, in that particular market. You look at it from an economist standpoint, in my opinion, this is an economist to me speaking, you're artificially inflating the market, an extra $10,000 in software's profit. You're, you're, you're trying to control the used EV market. That seems really interesting. It is interesting. Although, I mean, what's important to know is like, you don't have to, as a buyer of a used model three, you don't have to buy that car from Tesla. So essentially I think what's going on is, uh, basically if you don't want full self-drive, you're going to buy it from a, a dealer, you know, a car dealer or some other sort of mechanism. Uh, if you want full self-drive, you're only getting it from Tesla, you know, now Tesla is a, is a large operator in the used Tesla market, but they're by far the only, you know, the only choice. And so I don't think that they're necessarily moving the market, but I think that there are some sort of the fact that they are such a large player in their own used vehicles, uh, does sort of change some things. They're an extremely large player, but what they have that the used car individuals have, they have the brand. It's the experience you're buying it through Tesla.com. It's that whole simple experience from the brand because Tesla is a great brand. It's something that you know individuals are comfortable with. And speaking of individuals, individuals being comfortable, is range anxiety and and slow charging still some of the biggest hindrances to the full adoption of EVs? Well, I'll say it depends on what you mean by range anxiety. I don't think you know, obviously each person, each buyer has their own choices to make. But what we have seen is like range anxiety is not as much of a thing on a day to day on a trip by trip level, right? So in our, across our entire, we have like 5,000 cars that we're, you know, we have active connections to right now, like across our whole fleet, like the average miles per day is only 30 miles a day average, you know, across our entire fleet, right? 5,000 cars. That's not that different from the, like, if you look at the overall stats, like you see 40 miles a day or something like that. So like, and most of our data has been in the middle of COVID. So you, you know, people weren't driving as much. So like lines up pretty well. There are very few EVs that have range of less than 30 miles, you know, like almost none of them, right? Except you're looking at like a plug-in hybrid only on electric power. So I think that that is sort of uh, trailing off in terms of a concern about the EV buyer. Uh, however, I do think what we see in our, and frankly, why recurrence here is range, the anxiety that the over long term that range will hold up and sort of be the same as, as it was when you first bought it, I think is there. I mean, everybody's had iPhones, you know, long enough to understand that the battery sort of like wears down over time and it doesn't last the whole day. And I think people further get that, that an EV is basically just a giant iPhone with wheels on the side and a little trim on the top, you know? So, um, so that, that is a, a factor. And that's why I think what we're trying to do is to build confidence and transparency there. You asked also about charging. Uh, you know, I think that this again is dependent on the buyer, right? Charging is not much of a barrier if you have, you know, if the EV is your second car, you have a nice car for your first one, 
and you've got a driveway or a garage or a place to charge it. But for everybody else who doesn't have those two things true, like, yeah, charging is absolutely still a barrier. And it's something that we have to figure out as an industry to sort of move the, you know, you know, electrify our, our transportation. Chris, if we can have readily available charging, and I've seen photos of lines, 10, 20, 30 cars deep to get to a charger, it not in, it's not convenient, especially if you have a small child. You're like, well, I can just go to the gas station, put the gas in and get on my way. I can't, with a small child, wait an hour to get a charging. So you're right about that. Uh, uh, do you see the average miles going up from 30 miles when we start commuting back to work, when these offices start opening? Let's use Texas, for example, where you have customers in Texas. Goldman Sachs announced they're opening a million square foot office in Texas. You're going back to the office. Texas has long drives. Do you see that 30 miles going up as individuals start going back to the office and regularly commuting? For sure. I mean, it has to. Uh, I mean, if you want me to speculate on the future of where remote work happens and how much is hybrid, like I, I don't know. But the majority of our data was during, you know, COVID lockdown. So I would expect it like creeps back up, but it's probably still only 40 miles average. Now, you still have that average, you know, belies a lot of variance. And so you have people that drive a, a, a lot of distance. Uh, but still, you know, even still, the majority of charging happens at home. And so usually people are leaving their home with a full tank, you know, equivalent to a full tank of gas. So I think you you will get, a, um, um, again, like it, it, this is an impact. This is a thing that impacts people with longer drives, people that don't have charging equipment at home. And um, and and that that's where I think the public charging infrastructure uh, really is going to help. Let's stay on the state theme here for a second. Let's use let's compare Texas with Georgia or Texas with California. Do the prices of UV EVs change depending on the state the vehicle's registered in? Have you seen any fluctuations in the data or on price if it's one's registered in Texas versus registered in California versus Georgia? Uh, yeah, huge differences. So um, we publish this like a market report every month and um, watching um, we we sort of like created our own little like. <laughs> I guess like inflationary uh, um, basket of goods is actually ours as a basket of particular make model years of used EVs. Um, so we could really track what's going on in that narrow niche of the market. Um, and, and we're looking at that across uh, from a state to state basis. And, and so we see as much as like five to $6,000 differences in the same make model and year across state lines. And I think, like I said earlier, that's driven by, you know, this is a very thin supply market, and so you can have small differences in demand and supply can can result in way different equilibriums of price in different states. But it's also driven by those you know different state uh, level incentives that that cause uh, and even policies actually like a, a great example. Again, getting back to Tesla is you know Tesla sort of famously uh, can't still cannot sell. Uh, uh, directly sell Teslas and deliver Teslas to people who live in Texas, even though like they're moving the company there. Right. So there's like this whole rigmarole where like, if you're trying to buy a Tesla, you have to like in Texas, you have to like pick it up across state lines in Oklahoma or so, I don't even know, understand like why that's happening. Um, I, I do understand why that's happening, but I don't understand the exact mechanism there. But as a result, we've actually seen like the the market for used Teslas in Texas is is, is wild. It's really, really uh, hot, um, basically because of all these barriers to buying new Teslas there. Regulation and un undue to protect interests that are outdated is driving the used EV market there. That raises the question, 
Can a consumer today legally purchase an EV over state lines or do they have to go through some fancy paperwork to make it happen? I am not a tax advisor, right? But like, I, I mean, I, there are obviously transport fees that you, you. I mean, I think more and more uh, cars in general are getting bought from like online retailers, you know, Vroom and Carvana and that sort of thing, where you are buying, you know, a car that may not be sitting, currently sitting in the car, the, the in the state that you're in. Now, my understanding is I think those those businesses have a license to be able to sell a car in each state, even if the, even if the, the, the actual physical car doesn't happen to be residing in the state that you live in. There are, and, and then, you know, the more traditional way of like, you know, so between Washington and Oregon, so these are like two states, like one of them has an income tax and no sales tax and the other has a sales tax and no income tax. And so like forever people have been trying to like game that system and make their big purchases. If you live in Oregon, you go across the line, or sorry, if you live in Washington, you go across the line uh, to Oregon to make your big purchases. But of course, like Washington and Oregon have figured that out and they sort of like come after you when you register a car if you bu- didn't buy it there. Did they get they get their they get paid anyway. So I think there are there are oddities there, but yeah, for sure. Like that's that's that is a um, you know, cars can move. They can you can drive them or they can be transported. You just have to sort of like pay for it. I think it's some really neat opportunities for for good deals if you're really like able to understand like how those prices are varying in different places. Well, that's where you come in because you you can give your consumer the the market dynamics, the the economics of this. We've talked a lot about the booming used EV market, but I want to know what is the business of recurrent because everything that you've described is awesome. You're creating meaningful value for the dealers. You're creating meaningful value for the individuals that are going to use your service to buy a used EV. So, what is the business of recurrent? I think where we end up, I and mean, we're only a year old, so um, where the 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 problem we started to try and solve is like for a shopper of a used EV, we saw them asking questions about like, how's the battery in that car? Because because again, they've all had their iPhones long enough to know that battery lithium ion batteries wear down over time in a natural process. And they, you know, so, so we just, we saw that that was a black, literally a black box. The batteries are black, maybe silver box, you know? And, um, and people were asking questions that were different from what they asked when they bought combustion engine vehicles on the used market. And so the, our business is providing that sort of like, car, again, Carfax style report for a, um, uh, for, uh, a buyer of a, you know, set buyer and seller and a used EV where that I think goes from there is I think that just in general, there are a lot of ways that we can add value to facilitate every one of those transactions, every one of those used EV transactions, whether it's adding more information on to, for the buyer, more information for the seller, uh, you know, sort of guarantees on both sides. Like, I think that just once we're a, you know, our vision is like we, we will be a ubiquitous part of each one of those used EV transactions and then figure out from there, like how we can best serve both sides of the, of the market. One of the other things I think we're really excited about in, um, which goes to the resources for buyers and sellers is, um, in July for the first time, we're beginning to publish aggregate statistics from our, uh, from our fleet of, of all these, you know, 5,000 cars. Um, and so you will be able to go, or you can, by the time of this podcast comes out, you can come to recurrence website. There's a research section. And basically like, if you want to look into, like, I think the pages we're launching with initially are the Tesla model three, the Chevy bolt. Um, I think we're going to, we'll add another, uh, several, uh, models and then just look at like, 
how are in aggregate like how does the model free battery in you know uh, age over time and how is it dependent in general sort of like big rules of thumb based on data and then what are what are what are the people are actually driving saying about them um so that that doesn't give you the 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 sense of exactly you know this particular vehicle um, you know, how is its battery, but you can see the variance. And then if you want to go down and you're entering the shopping process and you can like, you know, go through the, the scoring system that I talked about, or just, you know, work with a dealer who's using recurrent. Um, so that that's an example of how we're gathering all this data and turning it into something that helps people early in the research, research and buying process. What is the exact website that a listener can go to? Thanks for that. This is another cameo promo or whatever. So it's recurrentauto.com. So visit recurrentauto.com because then Scott will send me a bottle of wine when he sees a traffic boom. So thank you, Scott, in advance. We have this like who sends who bottles of wine thing all wrong. <laughs> well, I have to be I'm the host, so we've got to go that way. So you're creating this transparent market. You're giving individuals transparency on both sides of the house. How are you gathering all of this incredible data because you're, you're operating, for, say, basically, I'll use the term like a stock exchange. It's really well done. It's really smart. And I see an incredible path to massive growth. So how are we gathering the data? So this is where I, I talked a little bit earlier about if you are a current EV driver and you you want to basically kind of, um, you, you come to our website, recurrentauto.com, and you can uh, sign up your car to essentially like um, share data with us. We, we grab a couple of non-intrusive data points uh, per day. Um, and then what you get as a result of that is you get a monthly report that kind of compares your car to other comparables. Like, how's it doing? Are there any sort of things to be worried about? How can you keep the battery in better shape um, for the long term? And, you know, leading up to the point where you sell it and hopefully get a premium for that. Um, but that that's really the root of the data of, 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 of sort of how we're gathering all this data is, is we've created something that's like a, that's valuable and useful and free for a current EV driver. And, you know, we're very open about it. Like the trade is like you're sharing these pieces of data with us. It's like the range estimate, the state of charge, the odometer reading, whether it's plugged in or not, whether it's charging or not, a couple of times a day. And that feeds into a machine learning model that basically uh, combined with the climate of, of your zip code, we don't know exactly where you are, but we asked for your zip code at sign up. Um, that basically feeds into a machine learning model that allows us to predict the the range of of cars that we see for sale. You know, I, I think that that's a that's the data flywheel that we're really focused on. Is like the more cars we get of each make, model, and year, and trim level, and geography, the more the better we can predict the range and um, and variance and and look and look identify. You know, potential really good deals, or uh, or you know, pretty de you know, extra degraded batteries. Um, uh, you know, with as as we continue to get data, um, and as we continue to get more data, it's hard what we're doing. <laughs> it's hard. Data access is hard, and the modeling is hard, and there's so many different. It's like a lab experiment with like just thousands and thousands of different unique conditions. I mean, all the cars start the same, but then they are exposed to differences in their life as they go, where they are, how they're driven, how they're charged. And so we're trying to basically come up with all of, figuring out how to model all of that. And when you encounter a car for sale, like what's the confluence of factors that got that car to that place? And 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 so that's what, that's what, what our business is. This raises the big question then. What is the future of the used electric vehicle market? 
now we're in the speculative portions. I, I mean, I think that in the U.S., like this is a small but rapidly growing market right now. I mean, if you look at the last five years, if you if you pull out electric vehicle sales, and this is both on the new and the used side, everything else is essentially has been flat for the last five years and is projected to be flat for the next five years. All of the growth is coming off of uh, off of electric cars. At maturity, uh, the used market, when I say like at maturity, I mean like if you look at the combustion and vehicle market, the used market is two times the size of the new market. And that's just sort of definitionally. A car is only sold once new, and then it is sold on average two or even three times over the course of its life uh, in the used market. So now the EV market is not that way yet because the, the growth in the new deliveries is so fast uh, that the used mar- used sales are still lagging behind new sales, but eventually those two lines will cross and used will eventually sort of work its way to twice the new market. Um, so that that will happen. It's just sort of like it's just a, a matter of, of the next couple of years. I, the other big thing in the U.S. is is, you know, I think that the used EV market growing in the way it is means that driving electric is not just like a thing that rich people do, you know, as as we move forward. Already it isn't like, you know, I, I think that the used prices, you know, used Teslas are still a little spendy, but like, you know, other used uh, EVs are, you know, so accessible for a lot of people. Um, and so I think that's really something that I think is important because, you know, there are a lot of like just cost savings benefits and health benefits and um, just like fun to drive benefits that like it shouldn't just be a toy for rich people. Um, so that's why I'm excited about it. But the last thing, the last point I'll make on this is like, where is the market in the e- in the U.S. going? Is like I think we can look at other countries around the world to see what the EV market is doing there to know what our future is going to be. Everybody saw the Will Ferrell, you know, uh, Super Bowl ad with him punching Norway, you know, because Norway had just sort of uh, hit. I think last year they hit fifty four percent market share for EVs. Right mm-hmm. now, that was like what. What's even more interesting is what's happened in Norway since then. It's accelerated since then. And what I think is you sort of like dig into why that's happened. Uh, you basically like you realize that like people are now buying EVs as a, or people are now not buying combustion engine vehicles because they don't think that there's going to be a, a market to sell them uh, in a couple of years. And nobody wants to be the last person to buy a combustion engine vehicle. That's interesting because you're right. We can learn a lot from Oslo. We had the, the news uh, from our friends in Canada today about their push towards electrification that's a really valid i never thought about that the last it's like the last man standing your vehicle will will have no value you'll get a museum that will buy it on the buy it on the cheap and you lose a lot of money which is not good for anybody really interesting to compare and contrast global markets and i appreciate your perspective there i want to shift the conversation to a topic that's near and dear to my heart and near and dear to your heart education you co-founded at a developers academy it's having a really positive profound impact on society and the individuals that have participated in that academy will you please kindly talk about that please uh, sure so it's a- ada developers academy named after ada loveless the first computer programmer um and uh yeah so this was about uh nine years ago now that um uh, i I guess recognize at the time I was uh, at a small company called Energy Savvy, and uh, my job, one of my job was to, jobs was to recruit our engineering team, and you know I think we were up to sort of eight engineers at that time, and four of them they were all guys, <laughs> and four of them were named Dan, 
Um, and I was like, okay, this is not a diverse workforce. This is just, you know, this doesn't feel good. And it's also, you know, we were recruiting against Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft and all these like big tech giants in Seattle. And so we were always sort of like, how can we uh, be smart and look where the other guys aren't, you know, for, for talent? And, you know, the, the most obvious thing was like, oh, well, all these other companies are ignoring 50% of the population. Maybe there's some good talent there, right? So, um, you know, one thing led to another, and this is the problem when you're an entrepreneur <laughs> and uh, you have an understanding family of like, you see a problem and you're like, I'm going to go fix that. I'm going to do something about that. So uh, with my co-founder, Elise Worthy, uh, w- the two of us sort of like created this, um, I guess, concept that we thought, well, we're going to create a 12 month long uh, boot camp style uh, workforce training program for women transitioning into careers in uh, software engineering. And uh, we started it 2013 and um, we, you know, we kind of created a curriculum on the fly, created a business model that allowed for um, the basically like the participants weren't going to pay any tuition. Um, and in fact, it was the opposite. We would we were going to pay them a, a living wage stipend to go through it. And so we I basically was able to convince enough of my CTO and VP engineering friends uh, to for the companies to foot the bill uh, for, for these. And the, the idea is like you would get an intern who would turn into a full time hire. Uh, so we like got all this like together in theory and we posted it and we had 16 um, people uh, in the first sort of cohort, uh, uh, nine years ago. And boy, did we not have any idea what we were doing. And it was like, all of a sudden, like 16 people quit their jobs, you know, cause they were like working in nonprofits and like baristas. And we had a you know, flight attendant who was reading Python manuals in the back of the plane. I mean, all these, all these kinds of different sort of like, uh, non-technical jobs, but, the people had never had, they were going through it and never had a chance to sort of express their technical aptitude. So we launched it, you know, got through the first cohort by the skin of our teeth. And uh, every single one of the graduates got, you know, immediately had multiple offers. And we were, and, and the companies came back to us and said, if you can do this at 10 times the scale that you're doing it now, we'll pay, we'll pay you whatever you want. And so it's like, that's like talk about product market fit. Like there's some lessons <laughs> for me as an entrepreneur, you know, the strongest product market fit I've ever seen. So as, as a workforce development program, however, like just the, the lessons learned in that is like, you know, all the folks involved in it, <laughs> turns out there's not just like this, this isn't just a program that exists as a, as a bunch of Excel cell uh, rows in an Excel spreadsheet. There are human beings involved in this. And, you know, that is, um, create all kinds of complexities that I thought naively didn't even think about uh, as we as we built it up. It's amazing now. They're now training. Uh, they're up to. Uh, so I stepped down from the board last year after you know eight, an eight year run as board chair. They are now going national. They're now training. I think it's like two hundred uh, uh, people, women and and um, uh, people of uh, non binary gender every year you know, have made incredible strides into not just like thinking about diversity from a gender perspective, but diversity from uh, race and and other sort of um, uh, other aspects of, you know, other of in- intersectionality. And, you know, and, it, and it's actually moving the needle, uh, you know, both in the Seattle tech industry and in, in, in other cities now. Um, so 
I'm like amazed at everything they've accomplished. I'm amazed at every single person who's gone through it. And I will say, uh, uh, well, actually, my old company had three ADA graduates um, on our engineering team and uh, and Recurrent now has one and we're hoping to get our next person as well. Um, so we actually have one, one person. Oh, I'm sorry. We have two actually one from that first cohort of that, of the first 15 people is, um, is now working at recurrent as a software engineer. So, and she's now a like, like pretty experienced senior engineer, you know, been in the industry for eight years, you know, time at Amazon time at Zillow. So like it's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of looped back around and is helping us now from a, from a recruiting perspective. Job well done. It, you are extremely proud for the listeners that can't see. Scott has the biggest smile on his face because he's so proud. And it's really incredible when you when you put your mind to, to doing what good because you're having a positive impact on those individuals' lives. And again, job well done. And Scott, as we look to wrap up this extremely insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Well, I think it depends on who you are, you know, and maybe you qualify in a couple of these categories. But if you are an existing, an early adopter who's like, basically like my friend who drives a Tesla Model 3, who you get on a road trip with him and he won't shut up about his Tesla Model 3. If you're that person, like come to us and sign up your car. Yeah, you're getting this cool monthly report that people are really excited about. But the majority of what you're doing is you're essentially uh, scaling your evangelizing, you know, and and getting more people into the EV market. If you're a if you're a policymaker, you know, listening to this, like I would just say, like, don't forget about incentivizing the used market. Don't only focus on the new market. You know, there are investments like in charging infrastructure that can help with both. But don't forget that their used market is eventually going to be twice the size of the new market. And we need to sort of support that as well, especially if we want to get EVs in the hands of all people, not just the rich. If you're an OEM listening to this podcast, if you're an auto OEM, like you do need to tackle this uncertainty in the used market. Uh, remember that reality is better than perception for the most cases. And if you're open about that, that it will mean higher residual values for your new cars. And so it does help you. So I'm here waiting to talk to uh, waiting to talk to you if, if you're interested from any of those um, angles. Be sure to visit recurrentauto.com because that's where you get the answers. You can get in touch with Scott. He responds. Great guy. Great company. And as we've heard today, tomorrow is today. Today is tomorrow and the future is recurrent. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the SE Tomorrow Today podcast. Thanks, that was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next by emailing us at podcast at SAE.org. That's podcast at SAE.org. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn as well to stay connected and to continue the conversation. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.